turn to read the Word of God now in the Old Testament and in the prophecy of Isaiah and in chapter 41. We're going to read from the beginning of the chapter down to verse number 16. Isaiah 41 and at verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands, let the peoples renew their strength, let them approach, then let them speak, let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up from one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with a sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes them on safely, by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with a hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you, and I have not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you war in Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. Amen is God's word, and we trust that he will bless to us our reading from it. And we're going to think particularly today of the verses that we have uh, from verse 8 to verse 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Sometimes in life, and perhaps more often and not these days, we get a clear sense of living in a world which is chaotic, a world which is full of confusion, and a world which is lived very much in conflict. And so often our reaction to that is to think that things have never been this bad and that things can never get better. We can fall into the trap of being so overcome by the chaos and confusion around us 
that we will let that cloud our vision of God and so hinder us in serving God, in following the Lord Jesus and in being the kind of people that we should be. And when Isaiah is given this prophecy, he is writing the prophecy, preparing a people who were going to in such a crisis. They were going to be away from their homes. They were going to be separated from everything to do with outward religion. All that they were attached to in the service and in the worship of God, it was going to be left behind. They were going to be carried away. And so God is giving this message to Isaiah so that when they arrive there and when they come to the kind of conclusions that we are so ready to come to, that God is no longer here and that God no longer cares and that God has left us. When we come to these conclusions, then we remember, oh, but God said, we remember what Isaiah said. We remember what God said. It's so important for them to have that message. When we read the surrounding chapters here, the nations are in crisis around the people of God. Is that not what we see in our world? When we read beyond these verses here in the chapter, we see that the nations are rising up against the people of God is that not our world? The confusion, the chaos, and the conflict that we see so often in the Bible, we see it around us in the world in which we live. And today we want to look at what God has to say in verses 8 to 10 and see the way in which he gives people a word of encouragement. And when we read these words as we go into them, we will notice something in particular that's encouraging, and that is that this is a conversation that's filled with I and you and my and me. In other words, there is a close relationship within which these words are spoken, and it is that kind of close relationship between God and his people that we pray for, that we long for, and that we will have flourishing in our hearts so that the word of God may be a word of encouragement to us. And so we think of the crisis and a word of encouragement. I want to think, first of all, of a covenant. And to put it as simply as I can, there are two kinds of covenants, relationships. There is a relationship between equals. So you and I can have a relationship with each other. We can make a covenant with each other as equals. The other kind of relationship is where there is a relationship between a superior and an inferior. And that's the kind of relationship that we have in the Bible into which God has entered with his people he has come down to establish a relationship. And everything that we see in the Bible with regard to God is understood by the way in which he does come down and he speaks to Isaiah, he speaks to Abraham, 
he speaks to people like you and me. He establishes our relationship. It's not a relationship that you and I control. It's something that's determined by him, and we walk in a relationship of obedience with him. And here we have a covenant that speaks to us of the plan of God. But you, Israel, my servant, here are the people of God, and they are gathered, and God is addressing them. And God is saying to them, you are my servant. And at one level, we may think that being called anybody's servant is something demeaning. It's something that, that's dishonoring. But when we come to read the Bible and see the way in which God speaks of his people as his servants, they are honored because they are brought into his kingdom they are brought into his household. They are brought into his family. They are brought to share in everything that belongs to God. You are my servant. And when we read on further on in this prophecy, and we see that God calls his son the servant, it reminds us of the status that God is giving to his people that it is a status that is equal to the status that his son has as the savior of sinners. And so God wants to address us today as my servant, as the servants that are equal with the son and that have been given that status because of what the son has done. And here God wants to emphasize the way in which all that they are in the present is based upon his purpose and his choice of them before the world ever was. Jacob, whom I have chosen. We remember the story of the birth of Jacob and Esau. And their mother was heavily pregnant. And the children were struggling in her womb. And the message of God came to her and explained the struggle to her. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will arise from you. The older will serve the younger. You see, God, in the mystery of his own purposes, is choosing for himself Jacob to be his servant over Esau because of all that is in the heart of God and not because of anything they have done because they have not yet been born. And God brings his relationship with the people in the present day, out of the world, above the world, and takes it right back to his choice of his people before the world ever was. And when we come to the New Testament, that's exactly what we see. We hear Paul in writing to the church in Ephesus with regard to the people of God that we were chosen in him, that is, in Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the world. And the same Paul speaks about his plan in writing to the church in Rome when he says, with regard to the people of God, whom he predestined, then he also called 
according to his purpose. He is the God who has a plan. And when I think of Jacob, and when we remember Jacob, he was not a saint. He had his failings. And, and we read of him in Genesis 32, coming back to the promised land. He had to run for his life because of his failings and because of his dishonesty. And God has told him to go back to the promised land. And he comes to this place that he calls Peniel because there he met with God. And he wrestled and he struggled with God until God touched his thigh and he lost his strength. And God said to him, no longer will you be called Jacob. You will be called Israel because you struggled with God and you prevailed. He's given a new name. He's chosen by God as the Jacob. He's given a new name as the person who is now in relationship with God. And there we see the, the purpose of God unfolding in the life of Jacob. That this God who has purpose to save us, purposing to save those who have no right to be saved, who do not deserve to be saved, but they are chosen by God in his love. And he reminds them of their origins when he speaks to them of being the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And God preached the gospel first to Abraham when he said to him that to your offspring I will give this land. The offspring that was going to be beyond number he was going to give them the inheritance of the covenant that was unfolding before them. All that God had purposed to do, he was going to give to Abraham and to those generations after him. And these are, according to Paul in Galatians 3, if you are Christ's, you are the offspring of Abraham and you will inherit the promises. And all that the covenant of God means brings us to the way in which God describes Abraham. The offspring of Abraham, my friend. And to highlight the, the sense of, of loving relationship that God is describing here with Abraham. The words literally mean Abraham, my loved one, or Abraham, the one who loves me. And the way in which the words are written in, in the Hebrew language, it gives to us a sense of a loving relationship that works in two ways. The love that comes from God to Abraham and God's saying with regard to Abraham, he is my loved one. 
And because of that, Abraham is looking back towards God and saying to God, my loved one. It's a relationship that embraces both parties with the love that comes from God and the love through which all of the people of God from which it emerges on the offspring of Abraham. The covenant relationship. The election of God and the love of God. And I hear Jesus saying to the disciples before he left them, I will no longer call you servants. Why? Because the servants do not know what the master is doing. I will call you friends. And greater love has no one on this that he will lay down his life for his friends. And so the love that we have in this relationship between God and Abraham, my loved one, we see it revealed in this special way in the words of the Lord Jesus. And we can be sure that something of this would have been in the mind of the Lord Jesus when he is saying to them, uh, you will now be my friends. So that what God said with regard to Abraham, he is now saying with regard to the disciples. And what God is saying with regard to Abraham, he is now saying it with regard to the people of God today. The covenant. In the words of encouragement that they needed, in the words of encouragement that we need ourselves, we have to rise above and to go back from what we are and what we are doing and what we are not doing. And we have to go back to what God purposed to do and why purposed to do what he did and to realize that everything that we have in the gospel comes because of the electing love of God and the loving election of God through which there are people in the world that God describes as his people and as his church in the world. And so the world, as it was in the days of Isaiah, as it is in our own world, it may seem that it's ready to, to swamp us and to make us lose our very identity and lose who we are as the people of God. But when we realize that God is above everything and that his purposes are working, then we understand things a lot better. The clouds depart and the sun shines and we hear that God loved with an everlasting love, a love that had no beginning and that will have no end. The covenant. Secondly, we see arising from that, we see the communion. And when we think of communion, we see the way in which everything that we have in the heart of God now begins to work out in the experience of Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees and in the experience of Israel in the land of Egypt. You 
whom I took from the ends of the earth, from the far country. And we remember that Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees, and he felt, or his father felt, the call to the promised land. And they left Ur of the Chaldees, and they came to, to Haran. And in Haran, God called Abraham. God took hold of him. And taking hold of him with the sense of, of grasping in such a way that nothing would remove Abraham from God's grasp. And nothing would stop Abraham from moving from where he was to where God wanted him to be. It's the, the grasp of the saving grace of God that reaches out to Abraham and that reaches out to ourselves wherever we are. And in the power of God, we sense that God comes and in that experiential way and symbolic way and spiritual way, he grasps a hold of our lives and especially our hearts. And he does so with that squeeze of tender love through which our hearts are moved for him and we sense the love of his, grasp, of his grasp and the love of his grip. We are in the hands of the God who has come to save us. And Jesus was able to say to the disciples, my father is greater than me. No one can take them out of my father's hand. And we come to to salvation today and we find that the security that, that we have in the grasp of God that no one can take us out of his hand. Not an ungodly world, not a chaotic world, not a world filled with moral confusion, not a world that is alienated against God. Nothing can take us out of the hand of God. That same God who took Abraham from Earl of the Chaldees is the one who called from its furthest corners. The call of God hearing the voice of the living God. Jesus speaks about the day is coming and now is when those who are in the graves will hear his voice. A voice that comes with all of its constraining power that carries with it the sound of the gospel, the power of the Spirit of God, the, the message of Jesus Christ, the power that comes in the call of God where he summons us as if it were by name and takes us from where we were where we are. And sometimes that taking from the furthest corners of the earth will be like a journey. For other people, it will be an instant. But the point in the encouragement of the people of God is that their salvation is because of what God has done 
in the grasp that he has of them because of his plans for them and the way in which he summons them and brings them to where they will begin to enjoy the blessings of the gospel and the promises that he has given to his people. The call of God. The grip of God to be in the hand of God. And when we are in the hand of God, and we read something in one of the earlier Psalms about God's face and God's countenance. When God takes us in his hand, he turns us in such a way that we see the face of the Lord Jesus. And when we see the face of the Lord Jesus, we see the face of God himself. It's the grasp and the call. And then that brings us to the communion. When we when he takes us from our distance from him, he brings us into his own presence, and then we read, saying to you that out of everyone else, that God comes in this singular way, and he uses words of communion with us to encourage us in our hearts. And that's the, the marvel of grace. It's not taking subjects from being in one place and placing them in another and asking them to get on with it. The relationship is personal. And as soon as God brings us to himself, conversation, the communion begins. And he makes everything that he has said in the gospel, everything that he has promised to Abraham, he makes all of that personal. Saying to you, you are my servant. And we're going to sing in the last psalm that those who know the joyful sound that they are greatly blessed. And in the moment in which we hear God saying to us personally, you are my servant, there is joy, there is depths of experience, there is depths of love, there is an embrace that is indescribable. It comes with the voice of God but it comes with power and it comes with love and it embraces our whole beings and transforms our every experience and thought and life. You are my servant. And when he says that, it brings home to us that the servant of God who suffers in Isaiah 53 is the servant who enabled me to be a servant and through his death and suffering on the cross that through him alone that he has enabled me to be a servant. And in, in the communion of God when he is saying to me, you are my servant, it's filled with a sense of 
the privilege of being children, but it's also filled with a sense of the great love of my Saviour, the one who lays down his life for his friends. At the centre of it is the whole reality of the person and work of the Lord Jesus as Saviour of sinners. You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. How special it feels to be chosen. We can be chosen for specific roles or specific callings in life. We can be chosen in, in certain circumstances to do something or to be something that we never expected to be. And here is something way and beyond that. I have chosen you that out of everyone else in the world that God is saying in this communion conversation, you are my servant whom I have chosen. And the encouragement arises out from the promise we have chosen you and not why is the Lord saying that? Why is Isaiah saying that? It is because that's what the people were thinking. They were thinking that God had cast them off. They were going to be thinking that along the line as they went on their journey to Babylon, the place from which Abraham came out initially. They were going back there. When they arrived there, it was the very thing they were going to be thinking, that they were cast off by God. And time after time, in the Psalms, we read the Psalmist giving expression to a sense of being forsaken by God, God forgetting to be gracious, God casting his people off, God scattering his people over the face of the earth. Of the earth. There is that sense of off but in the word of communion there is the assurance that he has not cast you off and that he will never cast you off and for ourselves today in the midst of every discouragement that we meet in life when God brings us to places and to events where we are ready to conclude that he has left us, that we are on our own. And when our hearts are filled with heaviness because we think that the most precious thing that we had has been lost, has been taken away. That's when we need to embrace and remind ourselves of these words of communion from God that comes in this personal way to lift our hearts and to give strength and encouragement to us that no matter where we are, that God will not abandon his people and that God will not leave us alone. There is the covenant 
There is the commitment. As we come to think of the words of verse 10 in conclusion, there is the covenant, there is the communion, and there is the commitment. And all of the words of verse 10 are to remind them of the way in which God is committed to them. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. It's the picture of people in chaos looking at everything that surrounds them and all of the startling things taking place in life and their eyes wandering back and forth from all of these things that are happening in such a way that they're losing sight of their God. They're dismayed, they're distressed, they're trembling just like the nations around who, who are running from the wrath of God. But God is saying to them, stop fearing, stop being dismayed. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. When they are weak, he will give us strength. When they are alone, he will give help. And when they need his salvation, he will uphold them with his righteous right hand. The right hand is the hand of power. The right hand is the right hand at which the Lord Jesus sits on heaven's throne. The righteousness of God is his work of salvation. And Jeremiah reminds us of the way in which that is taken up in the person of the Lord Jesus, that he is Jehovah, our righteousness. So that when God comes to save with his, with his righteous right hand, he does so by giving to us all that Jesus is a savior of the world, all that he has accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. All of that becomes ours. And all of the grace that that Christ has secured in his death and resurrection is supplied to us in every step that we do take. And it brings us ultimately to the cross of Jesus, where in Romans 3, Paul reminds us that the righteousness of God is revealed on the cross at Calvary, a righteousness which is without works, where Christ is set forth as the propitiation for our sins through faith in his blood. The cross of Jesus, the place in which the prince, the king of glory died, and through him God will uphold us with his righteous right hand. My father is greater than I. No one can pluck them out of my father's hand. We are in the hands of the Father and in the hands of the Lord Jesus. And because of that, we have God's commitment for our salvation and based on his choice and his plan from before the world was so that we may live in our world, whatever is happening around us, and know the stability and know the strength and know the, the purpose and the ability to continue believing and to continue living as the people of God in the world. And may God help us to, to understand something of what the grace of God brings 
and may we know his peace and his salvation as we seek to live our lives in a world that is so confused, that is so chaotic, and that is so full of conflict. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Gracious God, we bow before you, the Lord our God. We are thankful to you for your purposes and your plans. We are thankful to you for your people. We are thankful to you for your commitment to them. And we pray that you will help us to live in this world as those who trust in you uh, and to know that today is the day of salvation uh, and we know that for us to be secure today and uh, for eternity is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be saved. So help us in believing, help us to continue believing uh, and strengthen us day by day as we seek to live uh, for you and in your name in our lives spent here in this world. So hear us and accept us for Jesus' sake. Amen. A glory psalm is Psalm number 89, at verse number 15. Again, it's Gordy Sultan on page 345. Psalm 89, at verse 15. Oh, greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that know. In brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. And we sing from verse 15 to verse 18 to God's praise.
We'll stand for the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.